Welcome, welcome. Uh, how's everybody feeling this Monday? I want, to, I want you to give yourselves a round of applause for being here, because we did not expect there to be a full crowd today, so I'm really excited. Wow. It's been pretty awesome to be here at DragonCon. So, uh, my name is Matthew Rushing. I'm going to be moderating this panel today as we talk about Thrawn then and now. Uh, I'm the host of the 602 Club podcast as well as Aggressive Negotiations. And uh, I'm just going to have everybody introduce themselves real quick and then we'll get started. Hey, I know about the 602 Club. I've been on that show. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> I'm Bruce Gibson. I've been a guest on the 602 Club. I also am producer of the Star Wars Report podcast, and I co-host a podcast called Literary Treks, Star Trek Books and Comics. Hi, I'm Kelly Hill. I'm with the 501st Legion out of the D.C. Garrison in Arizona. I am also the Thrawn that you saw at the Celebration videos. Hi, I'm John Liang. I'm a producer and an occasional contributor to the Beltway Banthas. It's a Star Wars and politics podcast based out of that other hive of scum and villainy, Washington, D.C. I'm Timothy Zahn. I do not do a podcast. <laughs> I, I did not read any of the books the first day they came out, so I have no idea why I'm here. <laughs> wait, wait, you haven't read the new Thrawn yet? <laughs> I just said I haven't read it the first eight. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> Have you been on the 602 Club? <laughs> I don't think so. No, no, we need to rectify that. Okay, so uh, this is Thrawn then and now. Uh, and Thrawn is obviously a character that so many of us fell in love with back in 1991 or whenever you you know picked up a book somewhere. It was probably the library or bookstore, Walden Books, maybe like me. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I was just kind of curious for the panel. Even Tim, I wanted to ask you this question. Uh, and I want to kind of start with you. So you were contracted by Lucasfilm to basically continue the saga. So I wanted to know for you what your first experience with Thrawn was and, and kind of getting what you wanted to do with that series and the character and where all that kind of came from for you. Well, technically, it was uh, Banjo who contacted me. They had made an agreement with Lucasfilm, and uh, Lucasfilm people had liked my style uh, of the several samples that uh, Banjo had sent to them. And uh, I got the, the call and the uh, invitation to do this. Um, Thrawn's origin is when I was given the assignment, I wanted to do something that felt like Star Wars but was not what George had already done. So that meant no Death Star, no super weapon, no Vader type, no Emperor type. Okay, what else is there? Well, Vader rules by fear. The Emperor rules by manipulation. Someone who can lead by loyalty, I think, is more dangerous because the troops will be united. They will follow his orders, whether he's in the room with them or not. So, okay, what kind of uh, person would the, the troops be loyal to? Someone who's a tactical genius, so they know there's a good chance of that they will win whatever uh, battle they are put into, uh, cares enough about the troops not to waste them in a, in a futile effort if it seems like it's not working, pull out, pick another time and place of your own choosing. A uh, bunch of things came to mind that, that showed up in the original books. And finally, since the Emperor didn't seem to like aliens much, non-humans, certainly in the top levels of the military, 
make him a non-human because if he could make Grand Admiral, he must be something very special. And Thrawn just falls out of that calculation. I've got a sort of political question for you in that case. Um, what, do you think Thrawn was more politically astute on the, from a strategic point of view than his peers thought him to be? That's, that's an interesting question because, because one of the things we brought out in the book Thrawn is that he does not do politics nearly as well, certainly not the cutthroat type of politics that Coruscant was running at the, in that era. Um, I don't know how much he's had between between Thrawn and the Thrawn trilogy. We've got, what, 10 to 15 years, depending on which part of uh, the, the, the new book you're in. There's time for him to learn that. On the other hand, in the Thrawn trilogy, he is basically in charge of everything imperial. He doesn't have to play politics because he will give the order and it will be obeyed. So I don't know if he's gotten more astute politically or whether it's simply the politics haven't been as necessary for him to, to understand. Yeah, it's kind of nice when you make the politics, you know, like everybody's <laughs> bowing down to you. So that, that makes it different. Uh, I wanted to ask the rest of the panel just kind of what your first experience was with Thrawn and, and what drew you to this character and what keeps you kind of coming back to the character. Um, first read the panel in, first read the, the original trilogy in 1997, I just gotten out of grad school and going to come back to DC. I didn't have cable then, so I was went to a bookstore, found your book and the, 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 the entire trilogy, and just basically inhaled it. It was great. And then the new book, <laughs> I was at Awesome Con in Washington DC last year uh, when you, the moderator was asking Bria, the moderator was asking you, would you ever do another Thrawn book? And do not do not ever play poker with this man. <laughs> um, she said, you know, you, you very astutely said, you know, well, they have my number. And then a month later, I'm watching the feed from the Celebration of London, and pff, out you pop up, out the book pop, book, uh, cover pops up, and I'm going. Pff. So yeah, bear in mind, I had signed two non-disclosure agreements. <laughs> The first one mentioned firstborn, the second one mentioned dominant kidney. So. <laughs> Believe it or not, I started my Star Wars career three years ago right here at Dragon Con. And last year, I do normally a Royal Guard, and the head of the Imperial Officers Corps for the Legion came up to me knowing that I was talking about doing Thrawn, but I was going to do the original version that was not can had been removed from canon. And we knew that Thrawn was coming in from Celebration London from Rebels. And he walks up to me quietly after a party and says, Hey, Kel, you do Rebels? I had no idea what you were, he was roping me in for. <laughs> because we research a lot on our characters um, with the Legion because you guys are so amazing. You come up with questions that we have no idea how to answer. And that's why I'm loving this panel. But I started with Thrawn, and then I started doing my research and spent a lot of time. I've probably read each book probably 16 times just to get through the little things that you guys ask. It's really hard to keep up sometimes. And I, I know in podcasts, everybody has those troubles, too, that uh, you get these questions. You just go, how did you come up with that, Tim? I don't remember. <laughs> so I, I was very, very blessed. I was very blessed that Tim also helped promote my Thrawn, and I'm so grateful to him, and I got to do something very special with him at Phoenix Comic Con, and he spent good time with me, helping me develop a little bit of my character to understand. So 
that's where I got a lot of my wow. experience. Wow. I'm sitting next to Ron. That's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, so my first experience with Ron was in 91 when Heir to the Empire came out. I was like many other people at that time that was just not seeing Star Wars anywhere. And all of a sudden, just seeing on a bookshelf, there's this blue cover with Star Wars on the top. And I'm like, oh, Star Wars, oh my gosh. And I'm like, oh my gosh, could this be maybe because I see Luke and Leia and Han and I see them, the images on there. And I'm thinking, maybe is this the episode seven that we probably would never get, but we were going to get. And then I see this name on the bottom that says Timothy Zahn. And I'm like, that's not George Lucas. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is this is a sign that we're probably never going to get in episode seven if they release this book. So I was thrilled at one point because we're getting a new Star Wars story, but not so thrilled because I thought it meant no more movies. But I read the book, I loved the book, and what I loved about Fun is exactly what you said. It wasn't just another Darth Vader. For me, uh, Star Wars was something that, that came into my life pretty early. I'm, I'm old enough that all the movies were out when I finally got to see them, uh, but I'm not old enough to where I got to see them in a the theater, so I just watched them all on, on VHS with my best friends for my birthday when uh, it was like six or seven, which was awesome because we woke up in the middle of the night and I put in my favorite already, which was Empire Strikes Back, and we watched it again. Um, and I remember 1991 and walking around the mall with my parents and there is a copy of that book in a Walden Books, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, and I fell in love with that idea because, you know, like every kid, um, I started writing my own, uh, fan fiction, uh, as a kid, like what I was going to, what I wanted to see. Um, but then he did so much better and I didn't have to worry about it anymore. Uh, so that was my experience with falling in love with stars. And, and I mean, it was at that point where we thought we'd never get it again, you know, um, the way before the prequels, any of that stuff, you know, this was star Wars and he captured Zon, you captured it so perfectly that the feel. So I felt like I was reading seven, eight, nine when those books came out and the character was different enough. So I didn't feel like it was just a redo. It felt like a new, uh, challenge for our characters that they hadn't come up against. You know, and um, put all these really cool things in their way. And, and it was just, the character, though, is the thing that stuck out to me the most. And I wanted to ask you, you know, you've gotten to write Thrawn in all these different eras, which is so awesome because you get to explore kind of nuances to the character that you didn't in a different era. What were the nuances that you were able to explore in the new Thrawn book that you hadn't been able to before because of this being a different time period? And what were you excited to kind of reveal to us about the character that we didn't get to know before? Largely, what was new was what you already mentioned. We hadn't, I hadn't had to deal with politics with him before on the same same level I did with Rogue Thrawn. Um, one of the things that was we discussed back and forth uh, with my editor and the, the uh, story group, Lucasfilm people, uh, was the idea that he doesn't do straight politics that well, which is why we have people like Eli Banto, who does understand more than he does, and why there, have, there, there can be a, 
an uneasy alliance, cooperation, whatever, with Governor Price, who also understands politics to the regret of the people who pushed her into it in the first place. Um, so that was really the newest thing with the character. The other, the other part was, as I was writing, they were giving me access to the scripts of season three that Thrawn played, where Thrawn played a major role. And so I was able to see, okay, here is Governor Price hand-to-hand -hand with Sabine. Okay, I can put in the book where she started getting interested in martial arts. Uh, we have Thrawn doing some hand-to-hand -hand as well. I can put in a reason why he does do physical activity and have a scene, which meant I also could bring Hisishi in, which I always liked. Um, the, other, the other thing that I noticed is in all those scripts, we have meetings between Thrawn and Price, uh, Tarkin, Ularan, and none of them in Rebels felt like a first meeting. So, okay, these people know each other, at least marginally. I can put their first contact, their first meeting into the book. The idea being to meld the book as closely with Rebels uh, as I could. The other thing, uh, it's not really what you asked, but I'm gonna answer it anyway, is people often ask, you know, is, is this different Thrawn than I had written about originally? And the answer is no. Mainly because the, and Henry can address this when he gets here, mainly because the Rebels team didn't do the, well, we like him, but let's remake him in our own image. No, they knew the character, they had grown up with him as well, and they made him the same character who's in my books which meant that we're not rewriting the character, we're not changing him, all we're doing is putting in different chunks of the timeline that he's ever appeared in before. And that's something that I, I really love because I do feel like he's consistent. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask a question that my good friend Aaron Goins would ask if he were here <laughs> because I think the thing that grew people a little bit in the new book was the conversation that he has with Night Swan where he reveals his motivation. How many of you have not read Thrawn who are going to read it? Okay, so watch, earmuffs. watch for spoilers in this. Spoiler alert now. Can you dance around the question? Enough? Yeah, um, <laughs> just you are able to kind of explain his motivations yeah. for actually even being a part of the Empire and why he does what he does. And I think that kind of threw people because they weren't expecting to kind of see maybe a part of him that isn't quite as villainous of what we were used to. Well, you actually see a, a bunch of that in Spectre of the Past and Vision of the Future as well, so it's not yes, really yeah. anything really new. It's the idea that there are evil things out in the unknown regions, and we've come up with a reason of why the unknown regions are still unknown, by the way, that's kind of cool. Hopefully, some future thing, we can do that. Um, but the, um, yeah, the idea that he has decided the Empire is the most, is the best chance of uniting this part of the galaxy to defend against those. And the the little teaser or hook for a future novel, if uh, that he had met Anakin, I would I, I, I will hopefully, again, if Lucasfilm allows it, be able to have Thrawn observing some of the, the Clone War stuff and uh, seeing the chaos that the Republic has descended into. So when the Empire rises, he can see that that is, in his estimation, the best hope this part of the galaxy has. So again, I've got proposals to Del Rey, Lucasfilm is mulling at everything. 
with this film is slow these days. Apparently, there's this movie that they think will bring in more money than books. I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, when we get if and when we get clearance, um, we'll be able to get get something like that out. But I've got some ideas for the future, whenever they let me. I'm going to a little bit tag on to that. When we get spoiler, when we get to do in the early stages of the newest farm book, we have a, a, that introduction with Anakin and Thrawn in a reference with the Chancellor. And we sort of almost get an impression that Anakin really doesn't share a lot of information about the Chiss at that point. Because it's almost like the way you write it, that Palpatine is not very well educated about Thrawn at all. He has such a great, the way he speaks about Anakin, it's such a high regard for Anakin. Is the true allegiance to Anakin, or is it to Palpatine? Uh, really good question. Hopefully I'll get to answer that someday. <laughs> <laughs> I tried, guys. <laughs> okay, so one thing about, well, actually I have two questions. One's really quick. Thrawn rhymes with Zahn. <laughs> okay, I know this question. No, it's not deliberate. What happened was, in the early stages of plotting for the Thrawn trilogy, I thought, I, I briefly flirted with the idea that Thrawn is a little bit mentally not quite stable because he's the only non-human in the hierarchy, the, the top levels of the military. I dropped that idea very quickly and moved all of that to Salvioff instead. But I had come up with the name already, and I like the name. Thrawn is Scottish for twisted. Mm. So that's where that came from. Also, back in the 60s when I was watching Man from Uncle, I always liked the THR combination of thrush. Oh, so nice. Combined that's with that, cool. I didn't want to change it, cool. even though the, the reason for the name was no longer there. Cool. All right, so the other thing I'm wondering is there's so much about the Force that plays upon all the stories in Star Wars. So I know that Thrawn doesn't really use the Force, but what is Thrawn's interpretation or his relationship with his thoughts about the Force? Well, he's seen it in action, so he understands that there is something there. I don't think he knows how to codify it or understand it you know, on, a, on a basic level. It's not like hardware that he can get the parameters of and figure out how to defeat. Um, I, I will mention part of my problem with Clone Wars was always the Jedi are as powerful as they have to be for this episode. You know, if they have to dig 20 feet of rock out to get somebody, or you know, they, they can't quite you know lift this guy off the ground as he's running away with something. Um, the inconsistency, which is always a danger when you've got something like a force, telekinetic powers or whatever. But I think Thrawn knows it's there, uh, on some level can fight it, but on another level it's, it's just not easy to figure out. I do note that in, uh, how many of you have not seen season three of Rebels who plan to see it? Okay, I can, I can dance a little bit around this. Um, at the end in that final uh, final episode, you'll note that his first threat is to Kanan. 
So he is picking on the one who is the most powerful to make his do this or the Jedi dies type of thing. So he understands at least that that the Jedi are powerful. If I can take this one down, I can take the rest of them, and they will all know that. I, I have a question on that, because in some ways he doesn't have the light side or, light side or dark side, but however, he does have a power that's really, as you say, loyalty, that charisma that he carries, is almost as powerful as any force power. And if you look at other characters, almost their same charisma makes them have that strength. And it, that's the way I interpret that particular that phrasing, because even with his pets, he rebels their powers. But at the same time, he almost has his own charisma and force sensitivity in one way. And, and you can say, I mean, you can talk about a lot of people with charisma, and some of them can back up that charisma. Others, it's all so bubble. You know, look at Bernie Madoff and such people who conned people out of millions of dollars. They had charisma. Thrawn's charisma is different in that he can deliver. It's more like the, it ain't bragging if you can do it type of thing. So yeah. his charisma is backed up with solid ability, which kind of a double threat type of thing in there. Yeah. And wait, is Henry Gilroy back there? Hey, why don't you come up and talk about some Thrawn with us? <laughs> you, know, you know Henry Gilroy, of course, who, who writes and oh, yeah. created Rebels and worked in the Clone Wars? And, yeah. 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 Okay, that's who you okay. He's important enough that we save two chairs for him. That's right. <laughs> and I wouldn't exist if you didn't exist. It's <laughs> one chair for my ego. <laughs> you could probably say the blue ghost flowing is going to kill me if I say Well, welcome to the panel, Henry. Oh, thank you so much. Can I interject something right away? Yes, absolutely. Tim, and I don't, it's not a correction so much as just an addition. Um, when Tit, when Thrawn threatens uh, Hera uh, by basically by threatening Kanan by saying, I'm going to kill the Jedi first, there's two things that actually, even though he's no, had no direct contact or very little direct contact, the things that he's figured out is, number one, that Hera is in command. Mm-hmm. So he knows that basically he's giving her the ultimatum point, which is, um, I'm going to kill your most powerful, but also being Thrawn, he's probably figured out, you know, hashtag space married. so he knows this is a family environment he knows he's watched them he's seen what they'll do for each other earlier that that moment was really set up in an earlier moment in harris heroes where he lets them get away because he's really willing to see what are these people willing to do for each other what are we willing to sacrifice she blew up her own home and he's like okay now i now i understand that this family unit is more important to each other than a place that they would live in and, and when I talk about what a good job they did with Rebels, that is one of the points that Thrawn has figured out that whole thing just from his observations, watching them, etc. And I think that's an excellent, very nice touch that you guys put in there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, you know, I know that there was some, you know, I'd heard some rustling around, and well, why is Thrawn always letting them, you know, get away? It's weakening Thrawn as a character. and. And you know, the way we saw it is that this is a chess game, and he's moving pawns around, but he's really trying to see about the skill of his opponent. Obviously, he's heard that the Inquisitors were defeated, you know, and 
Khabib and you know Vader had these issues, so this is a source for group. So, but also he's looking at a far larger picture, which is to bring down the entire rebellion. And if you are trying to bring down a group, it is there's a, an extreme advantage in knowing one of them who is still in charge. You squat Hera, someone come come to take her place, and you're back at square one. If you understand her a little, if you're gaining knowledge about this core group, you know, Hera, Sabine, uh, Ezra, etc., you know some of these people, you know, therefore, you can get an idea of how their tactics and the tactics of everybody they come up with or they join up with will be. You have that advantage. That's something that I wanted to ask you, Henry, uh, specifically about you know bringing Thrawn in. Because so we had the Inquisitors first season, season two, Vader, and now we have a character who has no you know force ability, and he comes in and is a force of nature for these characters. What was it like for you and the writing team figuring out the the ways in which our heroes are going to interact with this new type of villain? Uh, and and really setting apart, I think, season three from the previous two seasons. Yeah, the previous two seasons, you had the threats of the Inquisitors. And what, what I, I like to approach is, um, and just like the films, there's a pattern of, uh, uh, of you have a mystical threat, um, and the mystical threat is Inquisitor to uh, Ezra and, and, Je- and uh, Kanan in season one, and then more Inquisitors uh, show up in season two, but then there's like the... Um, you know, the addition that our heroes get when Soka's help. So that sort of balances it out. And then you end season two with, oh my gosh, uh, you know, or beginning and end is you have Vader and you end it with Maul. So the mystical threat in season three was going to be um, uh, the Maul-Ezra uh, conflict, but we really didn't have like our, our kind of military threat. You think about season one, you know, you have, um, you know, Agent Callus sort of kind of running the show, and then when Tarkin gets involved, that goes terribly wrong for the heroes. So I think kind of raising the bar, um, this more as our heroes get more powerful, um, so do the um, sort of bad guys, you know, for all that purposes. So the idea is, is, is who could we bring in in season three that isn't necessarily the mystical threat, but who would basically be almost an overwhelming military threat to this group of rebels. Does that answer the question? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. One of the things I liked about um, how you guys brought Thrawn in is you kept his uh, use of looking at his adversary's art as a way of him analyzing how they're, what their weaknesses are and that kind of thing. And the, the one artist in Rebels is Sabine, which terrifies me because I'm thinking <laughs> she's going to be the first one to be bumped off. Right. <laughs> And so, actually, a more lighter question is: Out of all, all your crew member, you and your crew members, what's an average number of times that you have read the original Thrawn trilogy? Oh my gosh! Um, you know, I can nerd out and say, "Yeah, I read it ninety-one too," and I had a very similar thing walking into the bookstore and seeing what this doesn't say George Lucas. I looked in the inside cover; it said "Story by." It said nothing about George Lucas. It was Tim Zahn. <laughs> it's sort of like a, a Star Wars name. You know, <laughs> I mean, there was an idea we were going to have a guy named Zon Timo, I think. I had a fiction idea for Zon Timo, and it was going to be basically a guy who messed up on the bridge and Thrawn <laughs> <laughs> ejected him. <laughs> and um, because in, in Star Wars, you know, 
characters always murder their father, so <laughs> it just made sense thematically. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it. I don't think it ever uh, made it to script. But sorry, <laughs> you're still you'll live to see another day. I, I, if that happens, I want a screenshot or something. I, I want to look like that so I can go into, into Walk of Fame and sell pictures. But yeah, that was my first exposure to the book, and I, I read all three books, and it was a fantastic new edition. And, and what I liked about it was, oh, this is something I hadn't seen before. And, uh, you know, there was lots of goofy stories in the Star Wars comics in the 70s and the 80s, but I, I really loved uh, Tim's books um, because I think they brought us a whole new way and you know obviously enduring stuff you know um, and Lucasfilm Lucasfilm's really making an effort to you know mine the legends material for stuff that we all love that resonates with us you know? so um, you know I, I think that you know who knows what's gonna you know show up next for legends so. always bear in mind that the, the heroism of the heroes is measured by the villainy of the villain if it's a pushover villain, the heroes don't have to, to do much, uh, you know, knock them over a little bit. If the villain is extremely powerful, they have to bring their A game. If it's a villain like Thrawn, where they can't get out of it with just a lightsaber duel or something, now we have to kind of outthink and outact and anticipate more than we ever had before. So it brings a whole new level of how do we fight this guy? Yeah, yeah, you can. I mean, it's one of those things where if you're on his playing field, you lose. It, it really is. I mean, I really kind of loved the, the new Thrawn novel, how you have the um, Eli character um, who is sort of the, the um, Watson yeah. to his Sherlock. Cause you really can't understand what's going on in Thrawn's head, and I think that's why he's so effective because he's eight steps ahead and all the time. And when you try to talk to someone who's that far ahead, you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But like, yeah, you will in half an hour. Right? Exactly. <laughs> so Thrawn is that guy. So, um, and we never wanted to, um, you know, sacrifice that or have him, you know, get beaten cheaply. It's always in a way that for something he couldn't quantify. Like we were talking, discussing the force. The force is something that it, it it has a maddening effect on him because he can't predict it. There's no tactical. Precognition or uh, not precognition, but no tab tactical analyzing is going to help him for something that's ethereal, that's mystical. And, and the other way is to give him something he can't control in the last battle, for example, the order to take prisoners. A couple of things in there that you, you guys also understand. If he can't control it, it will mess with his calculations. Again, you're right. If you play in his field, if he's got perfect knowledge or a sufficient knowledge, and sufficient control, you will not be there. Yeah, and, and we set that moment up where Constantine moves his ship out of position. Yeah. Back, actually, in episode 8, when he sends Constantine out to take care of this planet by himself with one ship, and he basically, for all time purposes, humiliates Constantine. Yeah. And even right when they first meet um, in the first uh, two-parter, uh, Constantine's like, you know, Grand Admiral, when did you become a Grand Admiral? Because he already is like, okay, this guy's moving on my territory. So he wanted to establish that these guys already doesn't, does, you know, at least constantly doesn't like Thrawn because he's in the threat. Thrawn doesn't care. He knows this guy's a bozo. He's just kind of moving out of the way. So. But I suspect, and one, one of the reasons I put so much politics into the military in the book was I suspect Constantine is too highly placed to be kicked out, you know, counting you know, neutrons in the piles over at uh, Yavin or something. <laughs> just, he 
he's too powerful, therefore that's and people have asked, why is he still there? He probably knows people. Yeah, uh, and it's the sort of thing where it's, I mean, you know, I don't know if you're going to do the Constantine novel next, but <laughs> I, I mean, uh, it, that there is that backstory to him, um, so you think you're, you're, you're right on, but this is Edward's show, and so we really want to spend our time with the Red Wilson, uh, hashtag Space Married. But no, just just uh, the relationships of our family was most important. Uh, so, and we we really wanted to actually have Thrawn be aware of these relationships and actually be able to exploit them. I wanted to ask you because uh, watching season three, um, I've been thinking a lot about Hot Callus, and maybe that sounds weird. Um, but I've been we thinking, all have. yeah, I know. Uh, who hasn't? Um, but I've been thinking about his arc, and I'm I'm wondering since we have you here, is is seeing Thrawn's resolve and the way that he will go about things, was that the last straw for Callus to finally, like, nobody cares about me. We saw that in season two when he comes back. Nobody cares I'm back. Um, and then was working under Thrawn, like, that last straw, like, when he just sees that the Empire, we don't, we don't care about anything but ourselves and getting these whatever results and, like, that's something that really struck me, the fact that seeing this tactical genius who's willing to do whatever he has to do to take down these enemies, I don't know, did that have any of yeah, that? Yeah, he, I mean, he, he knows that Thrawn will do whatever the Emperor requires. So, um, and and I think that you're probably starting out, I like to think of Kalos somewhat like Anakin, where he's he's trying to do the right thing. He wants to make the galaxy a better place. And I think on Onderon, he realized like, oh yeah, that this was rough, you know, I lost a lot of my guys, and then, you know, I went to Lasan, and that wasn't supposed to be this genocide. And so, um, which, you know, explains to, uh, to Zeb that um, the bromance episode, we call it, Ice Planet Romance. <laughs> um, uh, so I think the idea of you, you a lot of times find that, that, that the guy on the other side of the line, or the other guy shooting at you, he's, you know, he's trying to protect his family, he's trying to do the right thing, what he thinks is right. So, um, there's people in the Empire who are not bad people. They're just, they're trying to enforce order and, and they think they're doing a good thing, but, you know, they don't know how poisonous is at the top. Obviously, as Kallus has gone up the chain of command, he's seen like, wow, there's terrible stuff happening. And he, he, you know, we kind of tried to set up some of that um, with the Inquisitor in Season 1 that he really doesn't like the Inquisitor because of this mystical stuff. And the Inquisitors would do stuff that weren't, um, like, uh, in the chain of command and were unethical and cruel. And so that's the sort of thing where you go, um, that probably started asking questions back then. So his arc is um, kind of a long change, but yeah, he was trying to do the right thing. And it's, it's interesting, a lot of people are like, oh yeah, is, you know, is, is Fulcrum, you know, callous for season three? But if you look at all the pieces, there, there, there are a lot of hints that kind of show. Um, I think also there's a scene we put in um, in uh, the Zeb story before the Ice Planet, where it's kind of the Zeb, I kind of like to call it the Zeb Moden story, because the science finds the home planet um, mm-hmm. for uh, Lyrason, I think is the planet. Um, he, I should know. <laughs> 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 Sorry. There's so many episodes. Um, but uh, that that episode, even though he's really gung ho, the fact that the rebels are able to escape this seemingly inescapable. Um, location is the start of him realizing, like, like who's helping these people? How are they able to do this stuff? There's like something that he 
couldn't quantify. So it's a similar uh, aspect to to Thrawn, where uh, underneath it, it's like there's a reason I keep getting beat, and is some of it have to do with myself? Mm. Um, and and realizing that maybe I'm not on the right side. So that's really cool. Um, I'm going to ask them one more question, but as we're doing that, everybody who would like to ask a question, please line up, um, because I know you guys would love to ask questions of these amazing gentlemen. Um, but I wanted to ask you, on before we do that, going back to that conversation and, and what we see Thrawn do in, in the newest book, where he is somebody who does seem to care about life um, and other... What is it that does set Thrawn apart from your average Imperial like a Constantine or just somebody else that makes him, I mean, it's not just that he's Chiss, but what is it that, because he seems to have this moral center to him that's quite interesting because we, I don't know if we've completely understood that always. Well, it, I mean, it boils down to he's got his agenda. His agenda is safety first for his people, second safety for whoever he is pledged allegiance to, in this case, the Empire. Um, when you start with that, you are going to try to defeat your enemies in the most efficient and bloodless way possible because you don't want to waste lives, you don't want to waste equipment, you don't want to waste planets. Uh, so he's going to have that, that moral core. Some people have uh, complained, if there's any complaint about Thrawn, it's the uh, the episode where he has the saboteur sit on the speeder bike and blow up. And I've tried to explain to them, look, this guy has killed Imperials with his sabotage. He is for the death penalty anyway. This way, you send a message to any other saboteurs. You also send a message any anybody who's slacking off in a screw-up. You better pay attention to your job or else you might wind up on one of these bikes as well. So he has not killed someone who the Empire would not execute anyway if they went through a trial and all of that and it is very efficient way of sending the message to everybody so again that's an efficient way of doing it we're not going to allow more sabotage but it's at the cost of one life that's already forfeit we are going to make sure this doesn't happen again or at least they have to think long and hard about doing it yeah i, I just added and absolutely you're absolutely right he, he there is this thing that we tried to bring out which is he has a he doesn't want to destroy art, and and if he can win the battle bloodlessly by forcing a, a, a complete surrender, he will. Because there's probably a lot of great, fantastic paintings down there he would like to look at. So I mean, um, forget the people; they don't really matter. It's the art. Yeah, as, as long as they imagine me, too, right? Continue to do sketches and artist yeah. alley. Everything will be fine. <laughs> We're all safe right now. But I, America's smart is that. That really so, makes him. I want to say human. Unlike the other, like, like there's a lot of bad guys, I'll just destroy everything. Like, Price doesn't have that compunction, and that's one reason why he doesn't respect her, is because she, she is so narrow-sighted about power. He's not interested in power. He's he's in it for the game. He loves the, the victory of it, uh, you know, and, and obviously, you know, overcome the adversaries, but ultimately, yeah, it's like, the Ember wants to bring order, he's going to do it most efficiently. So, but that doesn't mean he wants to boil up everything. He just, he blows it only when he has yeah. to, I think. Yeah, thinking about the uh, this little monologue in Hera's Heroes, this is the kind of guy who would never say, you rebel scum. This is the kind of guy who would say, I understand you, I respect you, but you are my enemy. If you remain in my in my way, I will destroy you. But his, his comments to Hera 
okay, there's a little bit of an edge to them, maybe a little bit of sarcasm, but you can, you can sense an, an actual, I respect you, you are a warrior just like I am. And that is one of the things that will set them apart from most of the other Imperials we've ever seen. And he's also that guy who would totally snipe you on eBay for that sketch. <laughs> 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 I feel yep. no remorse. Go for it. Go for it. There we go. So, um, I actually had stated beforehand pretty publicly and, and was uh, wrong, and I hate being wrong, um, that with uh, Thrawn, the Thrawn novel, I said, okay, this is going to be the back door to see Talon Card enter into uh, canon. And I was like, oh man, no, I look like an idiot. Um, is that something that we expect to see at some point, though? or? Okay, first of all, let me reiterate, I have ideas and proposals out at Delray, but Lucasfilm has to pass on everything, and Lucasfilm is moving kind of slow these days. The second thing is, while it is tempting to bring in Talon Card, or this Mara person, <laughs> or, or Polyon, the thing is, if you start bringing too many people into too small space, the galaxy gets smaller. You know, Charles Dickens had the same problem that he just had England to work with, and people kept running into each other. <laughs> you also don't want, you remember what Henry was talking about, about the build-up to where Thrawn, it makes sense to bring Thrawn into Rebels. If you try or anything else, this group is starting to, to grow and become a more serious threat. Okay, now we bring in the big gun. We don't, you don't want to bring in Talon Card, Margate, anybody else, unless it makes sense within the context of the time period, the show, etc. Frankly, I don't think there's any room for any of these guys in season four because you've got all these other plot threads, uh, relationships, everything to work through to the conclusion. Whatever they do after uh, Rebels, I don't know, I, I assume you have something in the works. Uh, maybe something would make it worth doing or make it make sense to do. But I am frankly just perfectly happy to let you guys do what you do because you're doing it so well, and wait for if it's the right time, right place, bring in some other characters. If it's not, we don't. I have two. I'm sorry, guys. Um, season four being the last season of, of Rebels, I, I, I'm worried about the possible expiration date on Tron, honestly. Um, but to me, and I'm glad you said Paleon because to me. Um, he was he was that continuing conscience as on the part of the empire. He, he took those lessons from Khan, He took them to heart, and he applied those to the empire. And I I, I want to see that not not necessarily go out himself, but, but that character that that Khan mentors and learns from, and he takes those 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 Thrawn ideals and morals into the future of the empire. Yeah, yeah. I I, I mean I know that's really um, for you. Thank you. It's like uh, this is my stock answer, which is watch Rebels. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned to see the board. Yeah, no, I actually love Dahlia. Um and I think um, you know, I honestly there I, I don't know what the, the future holds to be yeah, you know, completely honest, but I I really like Dalion too, that he kind of showed the like humanness um, or he was that new character that we as a reader could identify with and um, kind of see his growth. You know, I think Eli's the same character. You know, has a similar aspect. Similar role but different dynamic, yeah. And, and then for you Timothy I know you can't speak a lot because everything has to get past it. So just in generalities, what do you want to see for Thrawn that you have control of? You mean that, that you would be able to do, what do you want to see for Thrawn, I guess? 
I have a proposals in for no way. Seriously, I mean, this, this is what I have proposals in for what I would like to do for Toronto for the next, oh, I probably have two, two proposals in. Uh, our, our son has pointed out the problem that if I do three books, two sequels to Thrawn, we have a second Thrawn trilogy, which would be confusing. His solution is we do four books. My editor's comment when I mentioned this, she, she turned to a colleague and said, see how smoothly he did that? <laughs> but um, I, I will keep writing as long as you are interested, and I have ideas that I think you will enjoy reading, and Lucasfilm lets, Lucasfilm lets me. Uh, hi, I've got a question for both Timothy and Henry. Um, and I know you said you can't talk too much about like what's happening in Season 4 and all that, but I have a two-part question. At the end of Season 3, you talked about how when Thrawn, Thrawn identified, he knows what the Force is, you know, he understands that it's out there, but then he came across, and not to spoil it for anybody, something that is more than just a mortal with the force. Yeah, that's why he's like, what the heck? Yeah, and so yeah, I was just, yeah. I just did that, you think that phased him? Like, okay, this is like almost a godlike being. Does that like just kind of make him go, okay, I gotta reorganize my priorities? Yeah, it I mean, would me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Say, I mean, nothing seems to phase him otherwise. So, I mean, that's, that's aside the, from you grabbing his heart, and then he goes crazy. That's like a physicist seeing a ghost. Well, that's okay, and then the second part of that question is, okay, well, when that one character hinted at Thrawn's potential demise, is that a direct reference to how he was killed in Legends? Because remember, in Legends, his assassin, who I think we're getting in season four, his little personal twenty-five-year-old spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, wait a second. I don't want to read the books. But <laughs> is that a reference to his? Demise from Legends. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> or yes. <laughs> Henry, since I do Thrawn, and one of the fun things about that is... You're great Thrawn, when you, yeah. Thank you so much. Um, when you put him in the ATST bucket, which, and for those of you that don't know that term, we normally are referring to our helmets. When you put him in the armory, it was really interesting because... It gave that really military transition and gave that almost history that Timothy had given us from the very beginning, which I really appreciated. One, we always love more costumes. We'll never, we'll never deny that. But what, what motivated you to go into that hard armor in that scene? Oh, I mean, it's something that kind of set up in a, the earlier episode 16, which was the... Um, the battle droids? Uh, yeah, yeah, right, right. Uh, the idea of um, Thrawn, to really understand war, to really understand combat, you have to experience it. Mm-hmm. And and most generals who are worth it, you know anything, a lot of people say like, oh, they spent their time on the front line or in the trenches. So the idea, he's just like a tactical guy who sits back and plays other people's lives, didn't really make sense. Also, he knew that actually the only way he was going to get a surrender is if he went down there and did it himself. So it was it was practical, but it was also like, yeah, I'm basically going to go down there and make sure this gets done right. Um, because it is, you see, what happens? He he leaves space, and Price totally messes up. So yeah. and Ezra gets away. So um, he can't be everywhere at once. But wherever he is, there's a really good chance he's going to win. 
Thank you. And, and for myself, I appreciate you actually let him put on armor and a helmet because one of our big annoyances is the hero going into the battle without the helmet. <laughs> the helmet's for our purpose. And, and, and also, you know, I'm sure the people at Hasbro were jumping up. But we, I mean, it had a practical reason. There were reasons that had to do with the character, yeah. really, besides the plot. First of all, thank you for the books. Uh, literally, one of my favorite childhood memories of my father was him reading those books to me um, mm -hmm. over anything else, because he always came home for reading time. Um, uh, one question I know is, I know that the character that is Thrawn is way bigger in your head than will ever make it on the paper, or has ever been on the paper thus far. Is there any aspect of Thrawn that really was guiding you in writing that never really you could get on the paper, um, like a component of him that you feel like did come across in the books? Nothing comes to mind. I mean, I've been very fortunate in being allowed to write him pretty much as I want to, uh, within the parameters, obviously, with, with uh, the new book, parameters <laughs> of Rebels and, and such. But there's no, yeah, I wish I could bring out this aspect uh, that I've got in mind. I, I'm, I pretty much got, and he's pretty much what you see is what you get with Ron. We have about 10 minutes left, so just keep that in mind for your questions. Okay, I just like loading your stocking. Amy. This is like the fourth panel. <laughs> okay, well, no, you're stalking me because I'm always here before you. Bravo. Bravo. Yeah. The apprentice becomes the master. <laughs> in a Doctor Who panel, that wouldn't work. <laughs> so, um,. In Star Wars Level Season 3, in um, the scene where the sentry droids are attacking Thrawn in his office, um, Commander Gree's helmet is seen there. Like, I just want to know why it's there besides the fact that it looks awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, feel, I feel like that's a Dave Filoni question. Um, Dave's not going to answer that. <laughs> he might. He might answer that. Um, a few beers, maybe? Uh, <laughs> I, I actually think that really it comes down to artistic aesthetic. Mm. It's, a, it's a cool paint job. <laughs> and as we can see, um, you know, uh, from that episode, you know, uh, Ezra's paint job on his helmet ends up, you know, causing all sorts of trouble for the Rebels. But uh, yeah, that's the sort of thing that we want to say, oh, hey, you know what, he pays attention to this stuff. Mm. So the fact that he already had a painted helmet in there, I think two. It just makes sense. Okay. Thank you. You're so as an army officer who's been in Afghanistan, I want to say I thank appreciate you I, yeah, I, I thank you. I, I thank appreciate you the, the effort that has gone into creating the universe that is Thrawn, both in the book and the show. I think it's very accurate as, as somebody who's been on the ground there. I wanted to touch on a point that you made, Henry, about Thrawn being in it for the game. So you know, my role in Afghanistan was advising on the rules of engagement, the law of so this game implies rules, right? War has rules to it, and generally, we see Thrawn willing to abide by those rules. But between Bataan in the in the novel, Adalon, where he you know tells Kara, "I'm not accepting surrenders at this time," we see him maybe willing to bend these rules. Is Thrawn at his core willing to set the rules of the game aside if victory is the ultimate objective? Well, actually, I think what's interesting is is Price really is the, is the okay. one who causes the issue to the time. And, and actually, if you, if you watch uh, 321 again, 
Farmer's, I'm not basically, what he's saying is, is you can't beat me when he says I'm not accepting surrenders at this time. Because he doesn't immediately attack. If you notice, he sits back and waits. He makes them move in a position to try to escape. So really, they drive into the jaws of him. So when he says that, he goes like, look, it's no point. There's no point. So, so the fact that she's like, okay, he's going to ask for a surrender. He's like, no, it's, there's no point. He knows they're going to fight. So he's ahead of her is what that's really about. So as far as like the rules of engagement, I think there are in his head because he wants to, he wants to see the best that his opponent can give him. Show me what you got. And so that's what he said. Anyway, I'm sorry. No, I, I want to add a couple of points. Uh, first of all, the first thing they showed me after they told me that Stark Thrawn was going to be in Rebels was the scene of uh, Thrawn and Price coming aboard and the, the whole question of the Battle of Bataan coming up. And my first thought was, a bunch of civilian deaths, that doesn't sound like Thrawn. My second thought was, he's covering for somebody. My third thought is, was, he's covering for her, which is, that was where I was aiming to end the book in the first place. Second thing, you, you, you notice that even though he says it not, accepting surrender later in the episode he does call for surrender so part of it is what henry is saying of you know give us give me your best shot and part of it is he knows that often if you ask for surrender they are going to start coming and hawing and talking about terms that in fact he's seen this and stalling for time and he's not going to give them that chance i want to follow up on that really quick how many of those rules that he has how many of those are imperial rules that he learned and how many of them are chis rules that he has brought with him from back way back when. I would, I would guess. I would guess a lot are are either chis or his own internal rules. Um, yeah, in the book he's like getting Korshmar literally six pages to <laughs> break his own rules. So I think he does what he needs to do to win. And then what's the, the great thing about it is even though he gets court martialed, they can't argue with success. Yeah. So then he just gets promoted. So <laughs> if, if he needs another defense counsel. <laughs> well, I mean, that was part of the, the fun of doing the book is he's going to, he's down and rise through the ranks. He's going to come up with people who really understand that he is an asset, a valuable asset to want to learn or to, to use him. Others who will learn from him like Eli. Others who will hate his guts because he shows them all up. And he's going to run into all of those. And and you're right, he's getting court-martialed by the, the ones whose noses are bent out of shape. But the high command, as you say, you can't argue with success. So he wrote the book on how to be sticky in the Empire? Like, you know, you, just, you make yourself indispensable. And... Right, I think, I mean, he, he had his, his his guidelines, you could say. I, I There's a certain, I always I always look at him as like, like approaching combat with a certain kind of um, protocol. And he has manners about it. Um, so I think that's an interesting thing. Like you kind of get a sense of that when, um, you know, Captain Slave, I think on the Harris Heroes going to destroy Harris piece of artwork. And he like, you see that emotion from him. Like, what are you talking about? You're not going to destroy that. It has more, has more meaning than you do is what he's saying. Like, that's really kind of interesting. Um, Henry Gilroy, is that the name? I'm glad you're up here for all of this is directed towards you, Tim. I want to hear your input as well. Um, okay, you know, obviously we're talking about, hey, who knows what other legends, and we got that announcement earlier at Celebration of Rook, uh, you know, going to be in season four. So, uh, and, and, and I think, did they say Warren Davis was going to be his voice? Yeah. You know? Okay, so, uh, Tim, how does that feel? 
knowing <laughs> that Rook's going to be in there, and then maybe he can go a little bit more into whatever he did. Well, what happened in the books was a specific set of circumstances that do not exist in this time period, so I'm not particularly worried. My hope and guess, and you can talk about this, except you probably can't, <laughs> is that the re reason to bring Rook in is so we can have some real kick-ass fights between him and Zepp. That's what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. yes. I don't know, that trailer, we see Rook and Hera going at it. You notice that? It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's that's really exciting. Um, and again, it's, it's yeah, you, you're, you're going to have our, our military bad guys as we were talking about, and you have your sort of mystical slash physical kind of bad guy. Excellent. No, 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 no. I just want to thank you for the throwing numbers. The thank first you. one I bought physically, the rest I of the weekend I defined on Kindle. Thank you. Hi, I have a question for Timothy. Yeah. Um, so I really, one thing I really like about all the uh, different Thrawn books is the relationship between Thrawn and his Watsons. Uh, bring back Pelion, please. <laughs> but I really like that even though Pelion and George and Eli meet him all at different times in his life, um, he always has kind of like a mentorly relation with them. So I was wondering if you were um, if you were playing up the side of Thrawn as a mentor more <laughs> as the books went on. There is, I mean, is that that's part of it. I mean, the, the Watson is like a companion for the Doctor. This is who you explain things to so the audience can get it as well. But partly it's to bring out his, you look at the contrast between how he deals with Eli and how he de deals with Slavin, for example, or Slavin, sorry. Slavin is not teachable, Eli is. And someone who is a master of something is always looking for someone who will listen, who can be, te who can be taught, and who is, you know, wants to be taught. And even though Eli doesn't catch on right away that this is that this is something I want, Thrawn can recognize it in him. Uh, same with Pelion, same with George Hardass. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a it's partly a mechanism. It's partly a these are the guys he will glom onto because these are the people who he can talk to. Thank you. Go for it. Quick side. Billy, I don't know if you're taking off attorney and throwing a cosplay. I don't know if you have to be somewhere after blow to be able to pick your mind. Um, if so, this time. Um, what you could do is message me from the Dune Sea Garrison. I can answer your questions yeah. from there. Unfortunately, I've got to go right no after. No problem. Thank you. My question is the thing that really drew me to Thrawn in the beginning is I love the, the ugly morality question. This great character is not just bad. Like, there's all this whole entire bad, rebel good has been my way for quite a while. And I love exploring that gray area more. My question is uh, in your respective universes, Oh, a chance to, to explore that a little bit more. Maybe like Empire people are for the Empire more for reform, or people in the rebellion that are more they just skirt the line of terrorism, that kind of thing. I really just enjoy that aspect of the characters. Well, we've done the one with Saul Guerrero, who is becoming more of a terrorist than a rebel, and he's you know, been kicked out. As to the other side, the uh, 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 allegiance and choices of one books I did explore the five stormtroopers who wound up defecting and wind up being kind of an A-team, uh, Robin Hood, uh, Zorro type of, of, of unit. Of, there is injustice here. The Empire's not paying attention. This is what we signed up to fight. Let's go do it. So I've done a little bit of that. I would like to do more. Of it. Three, 
Yeah, uh, it's funny. We we had a discussion about that because um, you know uh, a lot of terrible things happen to stormtroopers, like in every episode of Rebels. So they all can't be bad guys, but the way we kind of try to look at it is probably a lot of people who um, signed up for the Empire um, initially were like, "Oh, great, I'm a bully, and I get to go bully people." And so you know you shouldn't feel bad about them. I think, <laughs> um, but I think that as time goes on, you realize like, oh wait, I'm not such a bad guy, and I've kind of been drawn into this. And why wow, I'm working for the devil? I think that you might actually be able to change your mind. And I think that there've been like, some great stories, and even in, you know, uh, Force Awakens, kind of get a sense of that. You know, within. So, um, um, you sort of even get a, a feel with that with Callus in in Rebels that he sees the error almost of his ways when he finally reveals himself as that spy I think you really see his I can't do this anymore yeah I that realization of I'm, oh my gosh I'm, I'm working for the bad, bad guys I've, I've become what I hate and I, and I think that's something that we see that happen in Star Wars thematically kind of through the stories thank you I'm sorry oh. <coughs> sorry so um, I just wanted to ask I can do about uh, maybe five or ten minutes unless they want everybody out because I've got another panel to go to. But I, I, I think my favorite Thrawn quote is um, when he's talking about in, in the Rebels uh, and he just says we'll see their destruction. And like it's just it's so chilling, and and the voice work for Rebels. I mean, it was the absolute perfect. He's he's never rushed. He's always calculating, and everything he says, he means to come out of his mouth. Except for that one moment when he wants to kill that guy for wanting to destroy art, and it's like he loses that cool for a second and it's back. So yeah, I love that. And, and yet I've covered that in the book. It's either he lost control or deliberately trying to break the pattern because this guy doesn't seem to pay attention any other way. Yeah. I don't know if I have a favorite quote because I can't think of one that's a favorite, but anytime he answers something similar to elementary, my dear one. <laughs> <laughs> Mine has to be when he's holding Hera's trophy. Allegory. You know, it, it really is, for him, it's a trophy. It's more than just her allegory. And him basically demolishing everybody in the room by not knowing what it was because he was such a master at artifacts. Mm. Mine really isn't a quote. It's more of it was in the book, in, in the new book, and the, the, you had a line, and the starship with a flicker of pseudo-motion went into space because those were always in the original in the original trilogy, and I had a complete, you know, geek-out moment. Oh, my God, I I love that. I love that line. Well, I just want to thank everybody for being here today. Uh, this is our last panel for Star Wars at Dragon Con, and it has been an honor. It's an honor to be here with you guys. Um, and I uh, want to mention real quick, um, there is going to be a Thrawn comic adaptation coming out, yes. so you, we have more Thrawn to be looking forward to. There is a, a, a Marvel adaptation, six-part adaptation of Thrawn coming out. First episode, I think, is in February. Uh, if there are enough sales, uh, we will try to pitch original stuff for 
or Thrawn series. So, you know, buy six copies each. <laughs> and if you want some Thrawn sooner than that, uh, Star Wars Rebels premieres uh, October 16th.